Well, good morning. It's always a privilege and an honor to be able to, uh, to spend the day going through Scripture with you, and um, I hope you're as excited as I am on Sunday mornings just to get to, to be together and to see one another. Amen. <laughs> So today we're going to be kind of looking at, uh, we're going to be looking at two miracles that revolve around time, okay? Now, what's interesting here is we, we all have an abundance of time, right? We don't have any problem figuring out, um, well, we, we might have issues figuring out what we're going to do with all the extra time, right? <laughs> no, but um, specifically, we're going to be looking at one miracle that has to do with an urgent request, made by a royal official. And then we're going to deal with another miracle that is, uh, let's say, precisely timed with, uh, in God's sovereignty. But have you ever had any times in your life whenever you felt like um, every request that comes to you is urgent? You know, just like one after another, it's like one fire to put out or another fire to pull, put out. Well, I got to thinking about that and I thought about an urgent request that I got uh, this past year. So uh, last year I was, um, you know, trying to take care of my wife and, um, you know, she has a Toyota Highlander and it was time for her to get new tires. So I go to the, um, to the mechanic, and I've set up an appointment and done everything, but this is our first time in this particular shop. So um, I go, and I sit down, and, and I've, I'm doing all the right dad things. I've got my, um, my son, who's one year old. You know, he, um, at the time, he was younger, so he was in the car seat, and um, then I've got my other son. He's eight, and he's got his iPad, and he's playing. I got him hooked up to the Wi-Fi. Everybody's happy. Well, about 10, 15 minutes go by, and, and the guy calls me up to the front. He wants to show me all the um, options they have, the warranties, the um, you know, roadside assistance, all those kinds of things. He says it'll only take a couple minutes. I say, okay. So, so I'm looking, and, and, and Christian, who's eight, he's on his iPad, and he's doing fine. I'm like, well, I'll just take the car seat up there. And I, we, we sit there for about two minutes. The guy's probably like two minutes in. And I hear, um, dad? And, and I'm like, just a minute, Christian, just a minute. He's, he's almost done and he's going through his paperwork. And then I hear the guy who had been sitting across from me say, bro, you got to see what your son has done. <laughs> so I turn around and I look and at first I'm confused because I see the chair my son was playing on. Well, he's behind it now and he's kneeling and then I'm, I kind of crane my neck around and I see he has wedged his head in between the bottom of the chair and the back of the chair. And, and the guy that was showing me the service warranties, he's like, that's awesome. He's like, my, my kids get into trouble. He's like, my kids get into trouble too, but your son is quick. All right. And he is laughing. He thinks it's hilarious. I'm so embarrassed. You know, I'm thinking this is our first time here. They're never going to want us back. The guy who was trying to sell me the warranty, he's calling all his friends. He's like, hey, you got to come here and see this. So he brings his friends out and, and they say, can, can we just take a picture for this to, for a memory? And so they did snap a picture. Katie, can you pop that up here for us? So here's a picture <laughs> of my son with his head stuck between the chair. Well, we start to work on it, and, and you've got four guys, 
four guys trying to pull the chair, trying to help Christian get his head out. It was impossible. We, we, we thought either he's going to be decapitated or this is going to be a really long day. So what they had to do, they actually had to go get an Allen wrench so that we could undo the back of the chair to get Christian's head out. Needless to say, that day, um, well, Christian learned a very important lesson, <laughs> and it turned out to be much longer than we expected. All right, well, in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, the request is a little bit more dire even than that. So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, um, turn with me in John. We're going to be in John chapter 4, verse 46. John chapter 4, verse 46. And we're going to read through 54. And this is what the word says. He went again to Cana of Galilee, he being Jesus, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. They answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now, this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he had come from Galilee, or Judea to Galilee. Amen. All right, so Jesus is on his way back to Galilee, and he encounters a royal official who comes to him. He, he probably served as um, one of the advisors to Herod. Okay, so he comes up and the man asks uh, Jesus to come and heal, heal his son who's very ill at Capernaum. Now, we don't know what this man had heard about Jesus, okay? But clearly it was enough for this man to believe that Jesus could do something. In fact, this man had to believe something, that he was capable of something because he traveled some 20 miles to approach Jesus and talk with him about it. Now, first glance, it doesn't look like this request is going too well, does it? Look how Jesus responds. But notice, he doesn't just respond to the man, he responds to the crowd. Okay, that you there is plural. Some of your translations will have it like you people, and that's a good translation. He's not just talking to the man, but to the crowd also. And this is what he says. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Kind of seems harsh, doesn't it? 
It seems like this man is, is coming and he, and he surely must have belief to have traveled this far. But Jesus' answer is almost like a rebuke that, that, that this must happen, that, that they have to have these signs and these, these extravagant things or they will not put faith in him. Now, sure, the man may be desperate, but desperate faith is still faith, right? Yes. Yes, it is. But see, the Galileans had this problem. You see, what they would do is they loved, they had become attached to almost miracles. And they looked for the spectacular all the time. And so they needed new proof and new evidence and more proof and more evidence. And it was almost like it wasn't that the miracles to them were, were pointing them to believing something. To them, it was like they just came to marvel. It was almost like a magic show for them. Wow, look what this guy can do. And yet we kind of see some similarities. I mean, think about it. In one sense, the man is there for the exact same reason that the crowd has been there. The miracles. But yet, his is different. His is deeply impacting. And so when Jesus says this to him, he doesn't walk away discouraged. He continues to plead. Continues to plead because he loves his son. You know, church, what God wants from his people is a faith that's moved beyond desperation. He wants us to have the type of faith that rests on the power and authority of God. This type of faith doesn't shake easily because it knows God can even if God doesn't. It's a deeper faith. I'm afraid even, even myself, I find myself falling into the trap of do I have faith or, or am I lacking faith? And oftentimes, if we struggle in our faith for a moment, we, try, we tend to promote it all the way down to I'm not having faith. When if we're honest, we know that there's degrees of faith, right? Our faith is supposed to mature, to get deeper. This is the kind of faith that Jesus is calling this man to. If you're anything like me, I'm sure you've had times where you've thought out about how God is going to do the thing you're asking him to do, right? So you're like, okay, if God is going to do this, this is how he's going to do it. Have you noticed what the man keeps insisting on? Jesus needs to come to Capernaum. But here's the question. Why? Why does this man believe Jesus has to travel there? Well, I have two guesses, okay? Either he was convinced that Jesus needed to physically be there, okay? 
He had to physically be there for his son to, to be healed. So it's a, a proximity thing. Like you have to be this close to have power over the person you're trying to heal. Or could also be that he wanted to watch it so that he actually knew that Jesus did what he said he was going to do. Regardless of which one of these might be true, the man still needs a deeper faith. The man needs a faith that trusts God at his word. And so this is what Jesus says to him. He gives him the ultimate test of his faith. He says, go, your son lives. Now that may be, uh, may go over your head for a second there. Like, how is that the ultimate test? But let me word it in different words that we might understand today. In other words, you say you believe that I have the power, the power, the authority, and now I'm telling you I'm willing to heal your son. But I will not go with you today. Will you believe in me? He's telling him, I will do what you're asking. The answer is yes. Will you be satisfied with this answer? And look how the man responds. The man responds by exercising that kind of faith. When we hear the story of the official, it's almost like scripture is asking us to consider the depth of our faith. Do we have a faith Could we trust God to do what he says he will? To be the, the kind of God that we know that he is and rest in that? Or will we have a meltdown if it doesn't go exactly how we're expecting it to go? Well, in verse 52, we see that this isn't the only miracle. This man goes home, and as he's going, he has these messengers come up, and they say, it happened, this is the time it happened, and so the man can confirm, yes, this is exactly what Jesus said would, would happen at the exact time. And the man passes on his faith to his entire household. Now, I don't want to just gloss over this point, especially when it comes to families. Our faith is meant to be passed on. Think about it. This man was the one there with Jesus. He's the one that had the conversation. He knew that a miracle had taken place. Everyone else was hearing about it secondhand. If he didn't pass it on, who would? Church, there has been many times I've seen people in anguish because they believe that they're trapped between um, a rock and a hard place. 
They deeply want to share Jesus with their brother or their sister or their children. But they don't want to be accused of cramming Jesus down their family's throat. I want to be clear. Jesus has been good to you, to all of us. Jesus has been good to us. Sharing his work in your life and sharing the gospel is how those things spread. How will your kids know when God has answered your prayers if you aren't sharing with them when he does? The answer is they can't. They're at the mercy of hearing from everyone else in the world what to think about God when those closest to them have seen answered prayer, have seen miracles in their own life. We must be people willing to share. Now, let's move on and read John 5, 1 through 18. After this, a Jewish festival took place. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool called Bethsaida in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lie a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him laying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool where the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, the man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting, persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. So at the beginning of chapter five, we're, we're transported from Galilee to Jerusalem, okay? And we're at the, the pool of Bethsaida. 
Now, the first part of verse 3 tells us that around this pool, there was a large number of disabled people lying around. Now, this is one of those, depending on your translations as well, but you might look down and you might notice that your verses go one, two, three, five. There's a reason for that. You might also notice that verse three seems a little short. It's nothing to be worried about or concerned. What scholars have noticed is that our earliest manuscripts don't include the second half of verse 3 or verse 4. There's a reason that this isn't a problem. Typically, what would happen is as time went on, the scribes that were copying the word of God would be fearful that something would be lost. And so there was a superstition during that time that what was happening around this pool of Bethsaida was that an angel was coming into the water and stirring it up. Being fearful that that would be lost, the scribe decided that he needed to insert that so that people would know. So a well-meaning scribe basically scribbled his notes in the scripture. But we know that that wasn't in the original. So that's why most of the time what you'll see is a footnote at the bottom telling you what the verse says, but just telling you we don't think it was there and we don't think it's important. The reason it's not important is because we know that what probably was going on is that there was a hot springs located underneath this pool. And what would happen is when the, the hot spring would bubble up, a lot of minerals and, and nutrients would, would go up into the pool. But it's still important that we understand what the superstition said. It wasn't just that the angel came and stirred up the pool. The way that the superstition went is that only the first person into the pool got the benefits of the healing. And so you have all of this, these disabled individuals gathered around this pool, clawing and hoping for the opportunity to get into this pool thinking it's going to make them well. Now you talk to any, any doctor and you'll find out for those who have muscle issues or joint issues, hot mineral water, would probably be a good thing. And it appeared to them that there was healing happening every time someone got in this pool. But just like we saw in the previous story, Jesus seems to, to focus in, to kind of zoom in on one single individual. And he asks him a crucial question. Do you want to get well? <laughs> Seems kind of silly, right? <laughs> what do you mean, do I want to get well? Do you notice how the man answers? The man responds by showing him the hopelessness of his situation. 
Have you ever talked with someone that's lost all hope? It's so, so sad. It's like they've lost the drive to do or believe anything. If you're familiar with the Chosen series, the Chosen series um, tries to take the Bible and to put it into stories, and sometimes they exaggerate. They, they add things in just for, to, to tell a story. But one of the things they did with this story I really loved. They have the man that's supposed to be disabled laying there by the pool. And it's gotten to the point when the spring starts to boil up and he looks over and everybody's clawing to get to it and he doesn't even try anymore. He just turns his head back and looks staring at the ceiling. He's lost all hope to believe that he can get in the water. I mean, can you blame him? If only the first person in the pool would be healed? <laughs> the man has never been first. He will never be first. Because he has no way to get in the water. But Jesus steps into this hopelessness and says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And the scriptures tell us that instantly the man was healed and did as Jesus said. But it isn't just amazing what Jesus has said. <laughs> it's also amazing what he doesn't say. Have you ever thought about it? The man has been an invalid for 38 years. Why did God choose now? Why did God choose him for that matter? There's a pool with people surrounding it with all kinds of disabilities. The answer is surely that this was God's appointed person, time, and place for this miracle. The man had very little use of his body. Not a problem for Jesus. <laughs> yeah, but he's been like that for 38 years. Not a problem for Jesus. We saw in the last story. But what about distance? What, I mean, he's, doesn't he have to be close? Nope, not a problem for Jesus. Just like the man at the pool, we tend to believe the more time that goes by, the less hope we tend to have. The longer a person is sick, the more likely that he or she will not get well. The longer a person runs from God, the more likely that they'll never know God. In our rational reasoning minds, this makes sense. But I hope what you're seeing here is that God loves 
to do the impossible. He looks for opportunities to do the impossible. Could it be, church, that God chose now to heal this man, to show everyone present that nothing is too difficult for God? He needed to make sure that they really believed it was impossible before he showed them the power and authority that God has. In fact, this may be the truth that you need to see today. Ask yourself this question. In what type of situation does God refuse to work? Let's compare the two stories. Katie, can you throw up that for me? The royal official, he sought Jesus. The invalid, Jesus sought him. Well, the royal official, he pleaded for help. Well, the invalid, Jesus asked if he wanted help. The royal official, Jesus performed the miracle privately. Well, Jesus healed publicly with the invalid. The royal official, he had no sin mentioned, but Jesus mentioned sin with the invalid. What might be most surprising to you? The royal official, he was motivated to believe. The invalid, Jesus worked without the man's belief. Guys, God is all powerful. He loves to make miracles come true. And there will be times in our life when we are tempted to lose hope. We are tempted to believe that nothing can be done. Or if God was going to do something, he would have done it by now. We should just give up. But that's not the kind of God we serve. Jesus heals this man. Maybe you've been wrestling with something in your mind that you know Jesus can do, but you're discouraged and frequently on the edge yourself of giving up hope. Jesus welcomes you today to come to him, surrender this burden, and renew your hope. Jesus is always the right reason to hope. Just when you think the party couldn't get any more exciting, right? Well, then you have a bunch of um, leaders, uh, Jewish leaders that come in and, and they bring with them the fireworks. In verse 10, we see the Jews hollering at the man. This is the Sabbath. What are you doing walking around with your mat? <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that something? Have you ever noticed how much the, Jew, the Jewish leaders were not like Jesus. <laughs> Jesus is consistently moved to compassion when he sees people hurting and hopeless. <laughs> and they're worried about what day it is. <laughs> well, listen, can you imagine the disciples? They're, they're, they're looking at this and they're like, okay, <laughs> this man... This man hasn't been able to move for 38 years, okay? 
And you couldn't wait one day to heal him, Jesus. You healed him on the Sabbath. Clearly, you must have made a mistake here because look at all the trouble it's caused. Nope. This was very intentional. Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath on purpose because there was a greater lesson that they needed to learn. That lesson is that God can work whenever God wants to work. No one stands above him and tells him when it should happen. Now, as we go on, we see in verse 17 and 18, we see Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And they're now destined for this head-on collision. I want to read those two verses. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. This is something that is so cool. You see, the, our, our Western minds think very different than the ancient Eastern mind, okay? When we hear son, what we think of is another person that's completely different from me, attached to me, but different from me. In the ancient Eastern mind, when they heard the word son, what it meant is an extension of. To them, it was equating, equating um, the father and the son on the same level. When Jesus says to them in verse 16, Therefore, the Jews began persecuting him because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. Jesus claimed right in their face to be God. He said, do you know why I can heal on the Sabbath? Because God can heal on the Sabbath and no one tells God what to do. From this point on, there will be this decision that Jesus must die. And this Sabbath idea is so at the heart of it that the next four chapters will revolve around what can be done on the Sabbath. But here's the question that we have to ask, church. If Jesus is God, if he truly is who he says he is, then what problem or force is outside of his control? As the band comes up to play, I want you to consider in your life the times that you've been tempted to believe that there's no hope. 
I want you to go back to that moment. Feel that feeling. And ask yourself, what did you need? What do you wish someone had done for you? Consider those in your life that might be in this hopeless kind of mindset. Church, we're always in one of two places. We're in a place where everything's going steady or we're in a place when everything's falling apart. We are to be there for one another, to be the comfort that others need. When we know there's hurting around us, it's not who should go and help that one. It's which one am I going to be able to help the most? God, direct me, empower me. The Lord is patient and kind. Respond now as he leads.